This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. Okay. Mr. Jax, I was wondering if you'd made any decision regarding the assistant manager's position. It's between Stu and yourself. Stu Rubin, the new guy? Stu's someone who's not afraid to make the tough decisions. I'm perfectly capable of making the tough decisions. I'll let you know as soon as I decide, okay? Will you help me? Please. Okay. We have an elderly woman asking for an extension on her mortgage payment. We would have to throw her out of her house. We've already granted her two extensions. It's a tough decision. Your call. Another extension is out of the question. Where will I live? I'm really sorry. Never have I begged for anything. But now, I humble myself before you. I beg you. Please let go. Please let go. Good evening, students, and thank you so much for bringing us that nice harvest cake. You have hereby been accepted to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Bradford Lorick. And I'm Eric Winnick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because tonight two of us are going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And these fellas will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, you. You know, Mr. L, uh, we've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Folks, it may not seem this way, but... A lot of work goes into these podcasts, so we'd like you to do us a little favor. Yes. However long you listen to scare you, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour and fifteen minutes, twenty-seven hours, whatever it is, if we give you one smidgen of listening pleasure, and yes, a smidgen is an actual increment of measurement, please leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts. I would prefer five stars, but I will take four. All righty, back to the podcast. Joining us today to discuss the 2009 film Drag Me to Hell is a guy coming to us all the way from sunny Los Angeles, California, Mr. Hale Appleman. Hi. Hi, Hale. Hey, Hale. Hale. (laughs) Now, for for, I'm sorry, what did you call me? I called you Brad, you know, Um, like they do in Brad, like they do in horror movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. yeah. Hey, Brad. Hey, hey Janet. Brad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Now, for the two or three listeners out there who are not aware of Mr. Appleman and his work, um, I will say that on stage, Hale has been seen at some of our major American theaters, including the Roundabout, the American Repertory Theater, the Old Globe, and the Berkshire Theater Festival. He can be heard on the L.A. Theater Works recording of Sam Shepard's Buried Child. Um, when Hale and I first became friends, he was starring as Jesus in the New York premiere of Sarah Rule's Passion Play. Jesus. Um, of course. Jesus. Jesus. Um, of course, Hale is best known for playing Elliot in The Magicians, but his other film and TV credits include Beautiful Ohio, Pedro, Private Romeo, and the Sundance horror comedy Teeth. Uh, and he's recurred on TV in Smash uh, and the currently streaming Truth Be Told on Apple TV and FX's American Horror Story NYC as a David Wojnarowicz analog in the 1980s East Village art scene. No way. Boy, oh boy. Way. I did. I did that. You did some of those things. You, apparently you did. So, Hale, how are you doing? What are you up to? What, what What's going on? What do you want to plug? What do you want to talk about? Oh, my God. Watch everything I've ever been in and you know, <laughs> get me that residual money. Um, no, I'm just... <laughs> I'm coming off of a really long, extended time out of the country and away from Los Angeles and New York. And uh, nothing is more revitalizing than leaving those two places and mm. coming back. Mm -hmm. So I'm feeling really great. Um you know, I just shot a little thing that I can't talk about, and right, we're looking right. for the next thing, and we're developing our own projects, right, Brad? That's right. Hey, can you talk about that? Mm. No, top secret. My whole oh, life okay. is top secret. Okay, okay, fair enough. So, um, welcome, Mr. Appleman. Um, you know, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre, and what is your favorite horror film? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a horror aficionado. Mm. I do enjoy a campy, funny horror movie, and I love uh, a suspenseful drama, but I, I, I haven't gone down the list and watched every horror movie known to man. Um, my favorite horror movie, I mean, I feel like the first horror movie that made the biggest impression was probably Carrie. I mean, I remember my parents, my father particularly showed me Carrie as like a young boy. Uh, I'll never forget the hand reaching up uh, out of the earth at the end of the movie. Um, what What is the, so that is the first movie that you, the first horror movie that you saw was Carrie? I think so. I just, I remember, I remember Sissy Spacek and John Travolta and Amy Irving and her yep. hair having yeah. a profound effect on me. You knew who had a profound effect on me when I saw that film? Edie McClurg. A young, nubile, young, young Edie, Edie McClurg. McClurg. Interestingly, <laughs> we, um, we covered that film last season, Hale, so you have a little listening homework. Oh who, was, um, who was your guest? Oh, we no, it was just have a guest. not at that point. It was just the two of us. Okay. It was just Eric and me and me as Piper Laurie. Oh, he Piper doesn't. Laurie. I will also send Piper you Laurie. a link to Bradford doing his Piper Laurie 
impression. Oh, it is gosh. amazing. It is I actually amazing. feel like that should be your next one person show. Would be I actually said that Brad to him. That's Lorik. so funny. You should mention it because I said you should do. It was Bradford Lorick as Piper Laurie as Margaret White. That's what I want. It's amazing for Christmas amazing. next year. So make it happen in the next. All right, on it. So um, I guess we should probably start by talking about what this film is about. Mr. Winnick, will you give us a brief, spoiler-free synopsis of Drag Me to Hell, please? Yeah, sure. I will. Absolutely happy to do that. Let me just uh, cue up the music here. Um... Mr. Winnick, that's that's not Christopher Young's music from the film. It's not. No, that's um that's Dragon the Line performed by Tommy James and the Shondells. Fuck. Uh, Fuck. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, just just um cue the right music, please. Fuck. <sighs> All right. Sorry about that. When Christine Brown, a young bank loan officer, must decide whether to grant a third extension on the loan of one Sylvia Ganesh, who's already defaulted on two, she's in a real quandary. She really wants that assistant manager position, and Stu Rubin seems to have the inside track with her boss, Mr. Jax. But Christine's determined, and so, with all the heartlessness she can muster, she denies Mrs. Ganesh the extension. It's a decision that will come to haunt her, for Mrs. Ganesh curses Christine with the Lamia, an ancient goat spirit that's about to make Christine's life a living hell. The only solution? The sacrifice of an animal and giving away the cursed object. Will a kindly medium, Ram Joss, be able to help Christine? Will the woman who met the Lamia years before, Sean Sandina, be able to lend her expertise? Will Christine's psychology professor boyfriend Clay ever figure out what's going on? What will stop this spirit's relentless assault and put a button on Christine's nightmare? You know, Mr. Winnick, as much as I appreciate the button reference at the end there... Thank you. I can't say I'm pleased given the way you effed up the music at the start, so I'll just say it was oh. fine. Okay. It's fine. All right. All right, well, so if you hadn't guessed from my busted synopsis uh this film was directed by the great sam raimi perhaps uh, best known for his direction of two trilogies the spider-man films of the early aughts and the evil dead films of the late 80s and 90s uh, including evil dead one and two and army of darkness he is also responsible for the standalone films the gift a simple plan dark man and 2022's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, among others. Now, naturally, 
Bradford, of course. I have seen all of the superhero films, but this is my first time seeing one of his horror films. So my question for you, Mr. Lorick and Mr. Appleman, I'm wondering what is your take on Sam Raimi? Hale, you want to field that? I love Sam Raimi. I remember yeah. seeing the Evil Dead movies when I was a kid and being oh. sort of equal parts grossed out and titillated by the humor employed in, at every possible moment. I, I I also, I remember also enjoying the, I guess I remember the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire and seeing that when I was a, a young person and I enjoyed it. And I, I felt, I feel... And I, I was, I guess, in the first sort of like 10 minutes of this film, I was just, I was like, well, maybe it won't be quite as campy as I, you know, but my fears <laughs> were <laughs> swiftly um, just totally thrown out the car window, like a staple out of my eyeball. <laughs> you, you might say. <laughs> as soon as the staple left the eyeball, I was, I was all in. Now, you see, I have to say, I think that even before then, you can tell that it's got Sam Raimi's fingerprints all over right. it. Because it's not only like the demon eyeball, but it's also the dentures and the the sort of like moose claws. Um, well, not only that, but I think also the kinds of... Um, the kinds of um, illustration styles that we've seen in other of his films uh, occur in the opening credits after the prologue. Um, there's a certain way that music is used. Um, that you know, there are certain kinds of even the qualities. credits were campy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and not only campy, but also kind of beautifully and thoughtfully executed absolutely you know um and you know i i haven't seen the sam raimi superhero films for which he is ostensibly more famous than for his horror films at this point but much like hale um seeing the evil dead and evil dead 2 and army of darkness you know when i was growing up um you know there's there's something unique about uh, Raimi that is is really not um, he, he, there are not many challengers to no. the throne that Raimi sits in. He's a master of the genre and all genre I feel in his own miraculous way the yeah. vision is so clear um, so tongue in cheek so funny and brutal ultimately totally brutal so Drag Me to Hell was written by Sam Raimi and his brother Ivan, and it stars Allison Lohman as Christine Brown, Justin Long as Clay Dalton, Dilip Rao as medium Ram Joss, not to be confused with meditation guru Ram Das. Das. <laughs> yep. <laughs> David Pamer as Christine's boss, Mr. Jax, and of course, Lorna Raver as everyone's favorite gypsy, wow. Sylvia Baba. Ganesh. Uh, um, I guess it's probably worth pointing out that this film was nominated for exactly zero Oscars, but it <laughs> did win three of the only awards that matter, the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, mm -hmm. including Best Wide Release Film, Best Supporting Actress for Baba, and Best Score for Christopher Young. 
Well, now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. And then we make fun of the critics. So Drag Me to Hell was released on May 29th, 2009, and was made for a budget of $30 million and brought in $42.1 million in the U.S. and Canada and $90.8 million worldwide. Now, critically, this film holds a fresh as a dollop of daisy 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Um, Our boy Roger Ebert gave the film three stars, braying, Drag Me to Hell is a sometimes funny and often startling horror movie. That is what it wants to be, and that is what it is. (laughs) After scaling the heights with a simple plan and slugging a home run with the Spider-Man franchise, it's like Sam Raimi is taking some personal time and returning to his hobby. It's interesting because I would not call Spider-Man 3 anywhere near a home run. It wasn't even a single, as far as I'm concerned. Who was in that one? Spider-Man 3. It was... Was was Alfred Molina in that? uh, No, that was 2. I like the Alfred Molina one. That was 2. Yeah, he was great. Um, Spider-Man 3 was the really ill-conceived one with Thomas Hayden Church as Sandman, Topher Topher Grace. Guys, I thought the really ill-conceived one was Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, about which I just read an article on Playbill.com that says George Santos claims that he was a producer (laughs) of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Like, who would claim that? Anyway, he should should be, you know, trumpeting his backing of Les Miserables, you know? Well, Jeanette Katsoulis of the New York Times, in a review titled Mud and Guts, said, at a time when horror is defined by limp Japanese retreads, or punishing exercises in pure sadism, Drag Me to Hell has a tonic playfulness that's unabashedly retro, an indulgent return to Mr. Raimi's goofy, gooey roots. In films like Darkman and the thematically similar Spider-Man 2, Mr. Raimi revealed a gift for merging the human and the fantastic, sustaining poignant love stories in the midst of horror and revenge. His talent is greater than this, But for now, this will do. Happily, Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly gave this film an A, stating that Raimi's psych-out of a horror film is a candy-colored, ghouls-gone-wild nightmare that treats every shock as a joke, or at least as an invitation to crack up at your own gullibility. Raimi surrounds a comely blonde lass with demons that seem to be erupting right out of her head. He gets into our heads, too. He scares the unholy living bejesus out of you. Raimi's operating model is the funhouse, with its jack-in-the-box terrors, but he doesn't just toy with the audience. He plays it like a maestro. He orchestrates a tongue-in-cheek symphony of fear. Well, now's our opportunity to ask the professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is me. Uh, But before we get started, I just want to confirm, Hale, that um, like Eric, you in fact had never seen this film before. 
This is true. My, I'm a, yep, drag me to hell virgin. Well. <laughs> okay, great. So um, now. I like to call it um, drag me to hell or what happens when <laughs> Allison Lohman refuses my home loan extension. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. So um, now please inform us and our listening audience, Mr. Lorik, why did you choose this film for the Scare You curriculum? Well, from the vintage 80s Universal Pictures logo to the William Castle-inspired Ghost House logo, you just know you're in for a treat from the very beginning. I think it's extremely well made by someone who is obviously in love with making a good, satisfying horror picture and is confident enough in his work to barely disguise his influences or references even or maybe even especially when they're drawn from his own work, which we will hopefully get to later. Um, I think the movie looks great. It's extremely stylish. It looks like money and time and care were spent to make it happen. Um, As we sort of started to talk about, you can tell that it's a Sam Raimi film from the very beginning. The really charming illustrated artwork that accompanies the opening credits, the kind of scope and scale of the musical compositions, and of course, the totally bonkers, over-the-top gore and horror elements that are all served up in a blackly comic terrine. Um, you know, I think, again, from the the very start from the credit sequence and the prologue. It tells you everything you need to know about what's going to happen in this film. And it sets it all right up from the very beginning, all kinds of style choices and conventions that Raimi will explore throughout the film, um, including those elements of shadow and smoke and vapor and creeping black icor. And Um, handkerchiefs. Handkerchiefs. Thank you. That handkerchief is the fourth lead of the movie. (laughs) But I do think that the film functions like a fairy tale or a morality tale. Mm -hmm. I think there are some elements that are drawn from Greek tragedy. And I think all of these things allow big emphasis on big issues like pride or shame or desire to loom really large in the the sort of thematic universe of this film and it's also a squelchy wet mucus covered gore fest of a horror movie with a cursed object at its center which always gets me going um everybody in this film is always taking or consuming or I guess also regurgitating, you know, Mrs. Ganosh, when we first meet her, she's loading up on free candy, the curse Mm. at the center of the story. It it requires that you take something from someone and then give it back to them. And I think Um, in that moment too, when she's in the, the loan office, um, her character is established as being hyper operatic. It kind of plays into the lore of, as a demon or a Baba Yaga or a vessel for that thing a vessel for that thing yeah yeah 
Um, and I, I also think that the editing and the cinematography in, in combination with the practical special effects create something that's, that's kind of like a, a perfect horror movie experience. Um, and maybe there's something in here about Raimi's uh, sort of appreciation for the love of technical filmmaking. You know, the, the, the appearance of the demon always kind of feels like you're watching a zoetrope. Uh, or, or something, the way that he plays with shadow and, and, and hmm. movement. Um, and I, I think I would like to do a study, like an in-depth study, a, a long-term study about how many minutes fall between moments of histrionic vomiting of various <laughs> substances onto the face of another character in this film. The pacing is so perfect. It really is. So, so beautifully executed. I was never for a second bored. And I want to bring up also the kind of the, the incredible tension between the absolute sincerity of an actor like Alison Lohman with this operatic diva demon on the other side of her uh, and how they worked hand in hand so beautifully because when you spend enough time with Alison Lohman between scenes, I almost was lulled into forgetting that we had just watched a demon projectile vomit or try to eat her face or that she had spewed blood all over her coworkers. Uh, <laughs> there was almost this like serenity and this ease and gentleness to Alison Lohman that is so at odds with the tone of the film, but that actually truly works in favor of the movie, I think. Would you describe it as a contrapuntal performance, Hale? You did it, B. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think it's it's kind of interesting, though, because um, she, as a character, is is running from her past. Um, right, her own PTSD. You know? and right. right, both where it was and who she was in it. Um, and and her desire for advancement is, is shown to kind of create the central drama of this film. You know, we're we're kind of meant to feel sorry for her. Right. She um, can't get a break at work. Her boyfriend's mother doesn't like her, and right. She, and she, she is the character with whom we're meant to identify. Right. You know, she is the central character to the the narrative, but right. motivated by advancement. You know, she wants the promotion. She wants to um, change the way that she speaks. She has changed the way that she looks, um, and and all of these things. Uh, lead her to making a decision that causes her to become the locus of revenge. Oh, vomiting kittens. That's the fire drill. Everyone, please leave the building single file. Walk, do not run. And uh, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film, turn this off right now. For soon it will be you who comes begging to me. <laughs> okay, gents, it's time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film or not. And we'll be breaking this section up into two segments. First, we'll do honor roll, i.e. what worked, and then detention, or what didn't work. But before we get into it, I just have to ask you both to establish where we are on the playing field and give me just a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Hale? Oh, yes. 
Eric? Well, Bradford, you know, um, no, I'm not going to go on and on. Yes, I did like I this will film. Kill you. No, I liked the film. Okay. Right. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. So then let's get into it. We'll do honor roll first. We're going to do it round robin style. And we will each name the scene or scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. And then we'll hand out the dreaded detention slips. So, Hale, as our guest, we're going to let you go first. What is your first nomination for the honor roll? Well, I may have tipped my hand in this direction already, but it's the first, it's the, um, it's the fight sequence in the car where they keep smashing into other cars mm-hmm. in the parking garage. And it's the first time that we are witness to the, uh, the height of the gore, horror, comedy, like full tilt expression of the Sam Raimi of the Sam Raimi of the Sam Raimi. And that was when I buckled my seatbelt and laughed a lot. Not unlike Christine herself in that scene. And she's so she's so um, prideful and and enthusiastic for having thinking that she's won that first battle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what the line is, but she has a great line. It, she says, like, like, I got, I got you, got bitch. You, you dumb bitch. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Something like that. All right. Mr. Winnick, do you have a an honor roll nomination? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, so I wrote this note before I read Owen Gleiberman's review, but I agree with him wholeheartedly. Everything works in sync on this film. You really feel like you're in the hands of a master operating at the top of his game and and not because he uses Dutch angles so effectively. The directing, the Which editing. Which he does. Oh, he does. He certainly does. Uh, the directing, the editing, the music, cinematography, the sound design, everything is operating just as it should. I mean, Raimi knows this genre. He's got a generous budget. The special effects team is working overtime. Most important, he knows how to pace a story. So it becomes this sort of relentless roller coaster ride that never lets up. So big props to Raimi, to the great cinematographer, Peter Deming, composer Christopher Young, the sound designer, whose name I believe is is something like Jesse Tegelman or Yussi Tegelman, and editor Bob Morosky, who won the Oscar actually a year later for The Hurt Locker. Wow. So Which there was you go. a spiritual sequel to it is. Drag Me to Hell. It is. Um, oh Bradford Lorick, what is your first honor roll nomination? Well, you know, I think I'm going to give it to the use of shadow and atmosphere in this film. And those are mainly practical effects um, to, to create the presence of another character who we don't really meet until much later, who is kind of central to the story, and that is Lamia, um, Lamia Majora. Um, oh, you know, in the, in the first... So easy. So easy. Walked right in. You know, in the first scene when Christine and Clay are meeting with Ram Joss during the reading, you know, it, it's it's present, but it's really subtle. And you see these sort of um, changing shafts of light that are playing across their faces. And obviously it intensifies and gets um, faster and bigger as, as the the thing draws its power, uh, you know, over the course of these three days. Um, But in a scene that's set in the middle of the afternoon, for example, you, you have to kind of think to yourself, well, what, 
what can a shadow do? And maybe you've forgotten that this shadow has has just moments before kind of violently thrown Christine across the room. Um, and maybe you don't even connect these things, but then you see the shadows creeping in again, and then they pick Christine up and make her pirouette across the ceiling upside down. You know, so there's like great um, palpability to these things. And it's all evoked or suggested by how they impact the atmosphere of the film. And Christine just has this remarkable recovery time after getting thrown to the ceiling, spun on the floor, smashed her head against the kitchen sink. She just really... Hale, if that happened to you, I would bring you a bag of frozen peas, just like <laughs> just like Justin gives to Alice. She really recovers incredibly really fast. I just wanted to reiterate and go back into a little bit of detail. The sequence that I loved so much was that first car battle uh, in the garage in which the details solidified my love of the experience of watching the movie uh including the jump scare handkerchief the woman showing up in the car the baba ganoush showing up in the car um (laughs) she's and she's she's screaming you shamed me you shamed me and she has the uh christine has the the little drawer of office supplies for whatever Uh yes that she happens to bring with her into the well because she's going home to do the yeah she's doing work at home I mean, the whole drawer. I mean, it was a lot. It was, I, right. So she conveniently has the stapler that she reaches for. So the, there's the close-up on the, the stapled eye, the campy backwards driving, the pulling out of her hair. And then when they, the, upon impact of another car in the garage, uh, the paper clip flies out of the eye, the dentures fly out of her mouth, and she starts sucking on Christine's face. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe I've never seen this movie before. And the spitting of the ruler, the yeah, just the shoving of the ruler into the back of her skull and the regurgitating of it, smashing the back windshield, just all of that was pure horror camp glory and i love that in another and she will never get that baba ganoush out of her upholstery <laughs> you know something it's it's choreography i mean the really whole is. thing is just choreographed to yeah. the second oh beautifully done yep yeah. yep uh okay uh hail do you have a second honor roll nomination for us well, can I can I can I also reiterate just the t- like the Allison Loman of it all with the operatic yeah. Baba Ganoush of it all as yeah. the 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 kind of like the the relationship hinge that makes the movie spin and weave through the kind of like waveform of trauma, comedy, horror, uh, and like sustained peace for the brief minutes in between. Like I I just think there's I read that Elliot Page was originally attached to the film and that um, it didn't work out. And so the choice, Alison Lohman as a choice, just changes the tone of the movie completely in mm. what I might envision it to, to have been otherwise with, an, with another actor or um, someone with more like of an overt edge or um, so a, an actor who like bears their their the 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 trauma of their soul into every moment of that character like i could have seen it uh i could have seen christine played uh by a young john malkovich exactly exactly 
um, <laughs> or Christine Baranski, you know. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think, uh, I think if I may interpret kind of what you're saying, um, I think Alison Lohman allows us to project ourselves onto her in a, in a really seamless way. Yeah. And I think She's that so might... gentle. We want to like her so much. Uh, Eric, do you have a second honor roll nomination? I do. I don't even know what my nomination was, but whatever. Um, yeah, you know, as far as the acting goes, I actually don't have much to say about poor Alison Lohman. Um, and I am going to reserve that for, for detention. detention. And, but, I, and I understand that thought, too. And I yeah. don't disagree. I just, you know, there was but something. I, I forgot how campy the movie actually is because of, like, her just... She's like a sea breeze, you know? <laughs> I, okay. I have to say, though, the turns from the supporting cast are great, even if they're largely playing playing. I don't tight. disagree with you. Can I have both? Yeah, yes, sure. But I think, you know, that was kind of what I was getting at before when I was saying that, like, the, the audience can project themselves right. very easily onto her because... Like when she doesn't stick the landing on the one-liner, we kind of forget or something, or we just go with it, or it's just... It, it, it's oh, just not it. a one-liner in Alison Lohman's mouth. Okay, so um, <laughs> moving on, as I was saying, um, I do think the turns from the supporting cast are, are great, even if they're largely playing types. I think... Lorna Raver is a total find. I mean, she was only 65 when this film was made. She plays a very convincing 143. Mm. Um, (laughs) Dilip Rao is excellent as the surprisingly well-educated for a fortune teller, Ram Joss. Um, I loved him in this and also in Inception. Um, Justin Long, uh, at this point now, a portent of bad things to come in horror films. Um, and finally, I want to mention Clay's parents, the Daltons, played by an yeah. actor named Chelsea Ross and Molly Cheek, who are absolute perfection in their one scene. They play rich and entitled so well that when the demon makes its appearance in that scene, you're like almost relieved. Not since the late 40s have they cast actors you know, as parents of, so convincingly. Right. You know. <laughs> All right. Um, Bradford Lorick. Uh Honor roll numero dos. Um, I'm going to give it to... There, there's a, a tiny little moment, but it, it's like if I didn't know that Sam Raimi had made this movie, I would know it instantly. And there's um like this perfect Raimi moment when um, a, the one of the flies comes into frame it's mm-hmm. about to oh. infect christine it's going to climb through her nose and around yep. her septum Why and into her mouth but right. when it first arrives it sort of lands on the camera lens yes and you see the fly in this incredible detail like and it feels like together. yes it feels yeah, like such I a ramy gesture and yeah. i just love that moment so that's a quick and easy one for me. I agree. Yeah, it sure is. Um, Hale, do you have a, let's start round three here of honor roll. Do you have a third and final honor roll mention? Oh, yeah. Just like, just the the huge pile of hair that was ripped out of Christine's head <laughs> the, of the entire movie. Just, that's the last of my hair you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> It is amazing that she has any hair at all in the end of the film. Uh, I have a third uh, honor roll 
for this. And it's very much in tune with what you just said, strangely enough. It is so interesting seeing the special effects in this film, um, given that it was made only two years after a film we'll be discussing soon, uh, Frank Darabont's The Mist. But it really kind of laps that film in a way. And I think it's largely because, uh, A, they used probably used a lot of practical effects, like the nosebleed scene in the bank. And B, the way Raimi handles the violence really makes you feel the craziness the moment it happens. You're not just <laughs> watching from the side. You often feel like this stuff is happening to you. The anvil is coming down on you. The <laughs> eye in the cake is looking at you. Mrs. Ganesh is springing at you throughout the film. I mean, how great would this film have been in 3D? I mean, as you pointed out, the fly lands on the fucking lens of the camera. Right. I mean, it gets to be really meta, you know, and yeah. it, it makes you wonder if you got any in your mouth. Yeah. Bradford Lorick, uh, I, let's bring it home with your third uh, honor roll nomination. What do you, what do you got for us? I'm going to make this simple and straightforward and to the point. I'm going to give an honor roll nomination for the line of dialogue. And I quote, and get your filthy pig knuckle off my desk. (laughs) I use that line a lot in my personal life. uh, And I have to give it some props because that is what you call excellent screenwriting right there. Mm. Detention after school, both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Now, as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Now... Hale, again, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a whole aspect of the film, but Mm -hmm. a couple of the great lines written for Christine's character weren't quite delivered with the gusto and the the kind of like emphasis that I would have dreamed of. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them being... At the end when she's in the diner thinking about who to pass the button off to and the waitress comes up to her and gets into a little argument with her because she feels like she won't give her a tip because she's just drinking coffee and Alison Lemon's character says, honey, just keep the coffee coming or I'll give you a tip you won't forget. And I just, Mm -hmm. it just didn't, didn't fly. Interestingly, um, I, I'm going to follow that up with a, uh, I'll just say I second that emotion because, oh boy, where to start here? I think she is fine in this film. I think she is perfectly adequate for Christine and that's all she really has to be. But I did find myself wondering, A, what happened to Alison Lohman because she kind of stopped acting after this film. And B, what would the role of Christine have looked like 
if it had been played by a better actor at that time. I mean, if you look at who was up and coming um, in 2009, you had Anne Hathaway, you had Amy Adams, you had Kristen Stewart, you had Kristen Bell, any one of whom I think could have knocked this out of the park. The yeah. more the more sort of personality an actor brings to the role, the less room there is for you as an audience member to see yourself in it. I agree on both counts somehow. Yeah. Bradford, um, do you do you have detention slips for this film? I do. Oh, okay. Well, grace us with your first. All right. My first one is, you know, I, I, I have very few detention slips for this film. Um, and the first one is that I feel there's a lot of misogyny in it. Hmm. And it's mostly directed at Christine. And it's mostly done, I believe, to help create her as a more sympathetic character. But I do have some real problems with the writing of Clay, Justin Long's character. Uh-huh. Because he's a really nice misogynist. Yeah. His, his sort of outward concern and care for Christine, I think, ultimately feels incredibly cloying and infantilizing. Um, you know, there's a, the, the moment when they are uh, first encountering Ram Joss and he sort of clay oh. balks at the cost of the reading, yet he insists upon paying for it. Um, you know, he, he completes her sentences in a really not charming way. Um, I, I just feel like he is deeply misogynist in, um, in a, in the guise of being, you know, like the best boyfriend ever. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of cheap. Yeah. Unlike in Barbarian, where he's just an asshole throughout the entire film, pretty much. Correct. Yes. Uh, Eric, do you have a, a detention slip you'd like to designate for, for this little picture? Yeah, you know, shockingly, not a lot of demerits on this film. But um, one thing I found a little unsatisfying was the aftermath of the seance scene. And I think it's because yes. the whole film feels like it's building up to it. Now, we've seen Sean Sandina in the beginning of the film. She tells the spirit, you know, we'll meet again. And so that whole scene... The seance scene has such a climactic feel to it. And by the time it ends, Sean Sandina is dead. The goat is still alive. The kitten is back. Milos is okay. Uh, Christine's just like, you know, thank God that's over. And Ram Joss is actually like, no, the Lamia can't be banished by a medium. I just felt like, was that like a bait and switch kind of thing? Or did Raimi put a lot of time and effort into this one scene that doesn't really do what it would do in pretty much any other film? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you because of how the film is set up with that prologue, that gorgeous house. Yeah, right? yeah. I it's mean, almost I, like it feels like it's going to be a, the bookend to that first scene. Well, I mean, I think that would be the easy answer. And Probably. I think that um, I don't know whether uh, the the sort of visual of the conclusion had occurred to the brothers Ramey uh, as a a way that they you know they they needed to get beyond a failed attempt at cleaning house so that they could uh, 
you know, they're, they're um, uh, actual graveyard climax. Let's think about it like this. It's not like installing a router. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I would imagine that um, expurgating a demon, uh, you know, always comes with the possibility that it's not going to work. And I mean, it's also kind of interesting how her character develops over the course of the sort of like three acts of this film, you know, and I think this is kind of part of it too. All right. So Bradford, do you have a um, second detention slip? I think that Hecuba feels really cheap for a cat's name in a horror movie. I agree, but I also laughed because I wasn't expecting that couple to it felt it have felt a fall. cat named yeah, it, it felt yeah that is that is a little weird Hacuba, but it but it also was funny all right yeah so let's go back to hale um hale a uh, third uh detention slip clay's utter devotion like unexplained utter devotion to her it just felt easy i guess it could have been earned more there could have been a, just a little bit more of a, of some relationship building there in the story somehow or uh, an understanding of like why these two need each other i think do you think with a better actor in that role as christine maybe they would have had more chemistry yes but i don't think it's about chemistry well, I think that's true, but I also think just a little bit, you know, there's like a little more personalization. All right. Eric, um, you've got a, a second a, detention. A, no, this a is third, my third. A third. I do. And it's very short. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, please that? do. Please just do. Just to say at the epilogue when he's like, I always knew it was you. And, you know, no matter what, it was always going to be us. And it just for that to have really landed, I just needed a little more information about them. I will agree with that entirely. And I thought that that stood out in high relief. All right. So, yeah, two quick questions, more nitpicks than full-on detention slips. Um, First, how the hell does Christine afford that beautiful little house on a bank loan manager's salary? Yeah, I just, you know, I remember there were houses in Los Angeles in 2011 that were like you know you could you could rent a three bedroom house on the east side for twenty five hundred dollars probably. Wow. Okay. All right. So maybe the market was just people. A lot of people moved to L.A. around that time because from from New York because they could get space and land and. Hmm. Uh, Bruce Campbell, Bradford. Any? Why was he not in this film? He's in every Sam Raimi film. He was unavailable when they were shooting this one. Who would he have played? I'm, Raimi would have found I mean, a way to shoehorn him into the film. He was the he's the hot dog guy in in, in Doctor Strange. So oh, I mean, you're talking like a cute little cameo or something. Yeah, yeah. oh I mean, yeah, Oct- he would have found a way. Octavia Spencer. That's right. Is I noticed that working in the bank. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. it could have been it could have been a Campbell shot. You know, and I mean, two years well, two years later, she was nominated for an Oscar exactly. for the help. That's right. And she was literal like wallpaper in this movie. Bradford Lorick, do you have a third and final detention slip? You bet I do. Why does Trudy Dalton, Clay's yes. mother, yes. have such an aversion to agrarian life? <laughs> she is so deeply offended by the concept of a farm yes. that it it is literally her defining character trait. There's a scene where they're on the phone and she's talking about the farm when she 
is handed the harvest cake made with really, um, what's the description of the goose egg yolks? Really firm around (laughs) harvest, you know? I mean, it's like all she can do is turn her nose up uh, physically, psychically, at the concept of anything having to do with a farm. Probably the greatest shortcoming in the writing of the entire film. Oh, I don't know. Oh, interesting. I just went with it because she was that mother. She was. She's a type. Uh, She's that, a type. judgmental archetype. Just has a bee in her bonnet. Yeah. All right, before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. We'll get some air in our lungs, we'll run around a little bit, expend some energy, maybe have a snack or two. Um, Hale, growing up, did you have a favorite recess snack? My mother did raise me on brown rice and vegetables. However, we also had... I thought she raised you on Bleecker Street, which is frankly the same thing. She did, but I also had a portion of my childhood in the suburbs in which there was a lot of like gushers and fruit by the foot. (laughs) <laughs> and dungaroos that either they wouldn't buy for us all the time but sometimes they would i mean there was just so much chemical dye in kids snack foods still is but i feel like mid late 90s were the the apex of just every possible preservative and dye and so i just there was a lot of like highly manufactured fake fruit yeah oh actually i would say fluffer nutter like peanut butter, yeah, marshmallow fluff, and graham crackers. Interesting. Uh, now let's take a break and then we'll come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with D and I, well, that speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular, and Cools, nerds, your side, my side. It's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award, the Gaspar Noé Award for most disturbing scene named for Gaspar Noé, dread auteur of such films as irreversible enter the void climax climax lux eterna and on and on and on it doesn't get more disturbing than a little gaspar Gaspar Noe. Noe. so um you know what i'm gonna ask bradford lorick to kick these superlatives off what do you got for gaspar Noe? Well, for Gaspar Noé, I think as an audience member, you know, you're sitting there, you're watching it, and you think it's going to be Christine's first nightmare with that snarling, biting Mrs. Ganesh, vomiting maggots onto her. But then you realize that that's going to be just the tip of the effluvia berg of Drag Me to Hell. Mm. 
And so I think for me, the most disturbing scene is when Christine is at the funeral and she falls onto the beer and she unmoors the corpse of Mrs. Ganesh and a lot of fluids spill out of her in sort of a reverse munging. And it, it fills Christine's mouth with just putrid green gunk. And I, I find that, um, rather disturbing. (laughs) As one does. Yeah. Um, you know what? I love the fact that when she doesn't have, her dentures in she's kind of gumming her you know what i mean gumming, yeah. she gums her twice in this film um you know mr lurk it's funny you should mention uh that maggot scene because uh like the ken russell award coming up there are so many moments to choose from in this film in terms of disturbing but if i had to pick one you know i think i am gonna go with the vomiting magnets dr- <laughs> vomiting magnets <laughs> That's that's the name of our indie band. It is. I think I'm going to go with the vomiting maggots dream that Chris has after the fly makes its way into her nose and mouth. Um, like so many things in this film, you don't see it coming and the effect is quick. It's disgusting. And it lingers just long enough for you to get a really good look at what is all over Chris's face and notably in her mouth. Um Ooh. All right, Hale, do you have a Gaspar Noe award? Yeah, actually, I'm joining Bradford for the same sequence, except what was most disturbing to me was that she comes with such a great intention to that house to Mm -hmm. make amends to the family. She gets shit from the daughter or granddaughter. And, you know, we know it's not going to go over well, but you didn't think they were in the midst of her wake. I guess upon further inspection, we could always draw the conclusion that Baba Ganoush has been undead all along, but it's just the embarrassment. And it's also, I found the camera move or the way that that sequence was edited in which you think you're walking into like a, a deadly silent house. Mm-hmm. And then we're in the midst oh, yeah. of the throes of this celebration yes. of her life. And everyone is talking and dancing and it's a really vibrant wake. You're it's absolutely true. right, Hale, because it she walks into that house and it's like deadly quiet. And, and suddenly she turns the corner. It, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a camera move. I don't know if that was in one or if that was an edit on when, when it, when they like panned through one room into the other. Yeah. But it was so beautifully disturbing that it felt like one camera move from this silent entryway. And she turns the corner and all of a sudden seemingly in the same shot, we're in the midst of this party. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she goes right into the conga line after she makes a turn at the bottom <laughs> of the stairs. Yeah, it's actually very Lynchian. It's like the one it sort is. of very David Lynchian moment. It reminded me of something out of Lost Highway, which also has a scene at a party where suddenly everything goes quiet. All right, so that brings us to our next award, the Ellen Ripley Award for a character who most deserved to live but does not. This award is named for one Ellen Ripley, uh, the character played by Sigourney Weaver in the Alien cinematic universe. Hale, 
Do you want to start us off? Character that most deserved to live but does not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, it is and will always be Baba Ganoush. I feel like she just, she probably, she wouldn't be haunting us at this point if she had gotten what she deserved, you know? That's character who most deserved to live. I was just trying to do a thing, you know, maybe it didn't work. I don't know. No, no, no. I, 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 uh, do you have an actual Ellen Ripley award or is that it? Well, I mean, was, I mean I think, was he doing a bit? I mean, I'm like sincere in my bit in that, in that <laughs> like the performance was so good that I, that I would have liked to have seen her live for the first time, even though she's already dead. Basically, Okay. That's fair. Bradford Lork, Ellen Ripley award. Oh, God. I mean, I think Sean Sandina, maybe. I, I'm not sure that... Who's that? The medium. Have you watched the fucking oh. movie, Appleman? Yeah, I don't know her fucking name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I'm teasing, obviously. But yeah, um, I think... Are you? Not about my designation of the award. No. Only about the shit that I'm giving to Hale. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we all make bad choices in life, guys. You know, it's part of being young... I'm sure you didn't make mistakes, but I I made a few. And and growing up, frankly, the mistakes we make are supposed to make us better people, not damn us to hell. So for me, the character that most deserved to live is sweet Christine, played by Alison Lohman. That's the right answer. It it may be the right answer, but uh, it's not as good as yours, Hale. Um, Which brings us to the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die and does. Uh, You know what? I'm going to cast this over to to Hale. Hale, who is Michael Myers? Who's Michael Myers? Yeah. He's the guy in Halloween, right? That is correct. He's Very Amy good. Lee Curtis's brother who lives to to kill or died or Ooh. died to kill. All right, I'll start us off. Um, as much as I'd like to hand it to Justin Long, uh, he lives, and so I'm not going to bend the rules again on this podcast. So I'm going to go the utterly predictable route and say, "Old staple face herself, Baba Ganesh." Hail. What do you have for the Michael Myers Award? Well, I believe Baba Ganoush was my pick as well. So I suppose oh. we had the same thought. So wait, you have her for both the Ellen Ripley and the yes, Michael Myers? Because the performance was that good. She I like so that. Good, so now memorable. see, I see what you did there. You know, I was given the same answer twice. and I get it now. Yeah, it yeah. Intentional. It was that would be a slippery one, Mr. Appleman. Uh, Bradford, yeah. is this the first? Is this the first? for scare you that somebody has given the Ripley and Myers award to the same character. It may be, but you know, I wouldn't put anything past Hale. He's a trailblazer. Always has been, always will be. Wow. Mm. All right, Bradford, who do you have for Michael Myers? Christine. Yeah, that's right. Full stop. (laughs) This is just a series of opposites. The Lamia is dispatched to get revenge. On behalf of someone who has some not insignificant magical powers and believes that she was wronged, the Lamia is like the Eumenides in... uh, uh, In the Eumenides. Well, in the Eumenides, sure. Uh, The Lamia is like the Eumenides in ancient Greece, summoned to get revenge. Christine did something wrong. She is being punished for her wrongdoing. Yeah, but... Come on, Bradford. I mean, like I said, we we all make mistakes. Does she really deserve to be 
damned to hell for all eternity. She made the wrong choice with the wrong person. Right. You know, you mess yeah. with the bull, you get the horns, you, you mess get the with horns. Sylvia Ganosh, you get the gums. <laughs> okay. Well, that brings us to the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque screen moment uh named for another dread auteur who is best known for um i would say the the devils and altered states and whore whore crimes of passion gothic Salome's last dance lair of the white worm the rainbow women in love i mean let's just we whore. could go on and on whore, whore. <laughs> <laughs> poor Teresa russell um you know, again, where do you start with a film like this? You know, I was thinking about the bedroom scene, you know, where she gets lifted up in the air. I was thinking about the parking garage scene and the funeral scene and, of course, the seance. But, you know, for Baroque scenes, I'm going to go with the cemetery scene in which Christine is somehow able to get into the coffin of Mrs. Ganesh, make the formal offering, and then shoves the as it turns out, wrong envelope into her mouth with that great line, choke on it, bitch, and all the rain and all the mud is cascading down and you think this is going to be it for Christine. But no, but no, she manages to get out of that grave. That whole scene is just a crescendo of anxiety and fear and so well-directed and all done on a soundstage, as it turns out. Um, Hale Appleman, who do you... What do you have for the uh, Ken Russell Award for most Baroque well, screen not, moment? I, I picked the same exact. Hey, sequence. all right, yeah. all right. Um, crazy. And then she was just able to dig, you know, like a 10-foot trench. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, I think they sort of hint that it's still kind of open. Yeah. Yeah. Loose. A little yeah. bit, yeah. The dirt's Maybe. loose. It's loose enough. So. But still. Yeah. Um, and that it, yeah, it just keeps building and building and building. She gets conked on the head. You think Ugh. she's gone forever and she climbs back out. Only to find out she still has the button. Um, all right. Bradford Lorick, the Ken Russell Award. I'm a little torn. I think there's something really over the top about that first scene in the car when Mrs. Ganesh flies out of the back seat and she hits her head on the dashboard mm -hmm. and then her dentures come flying out. Yep. And um, the staple. And the staple, of course. But I really do think that the, the sort of, um, that sort of Ken Russell emphasis on maximalism and, mm -hmm. and Baroqueness, I mean, I really do think it's the entire ritual scene. The seance. Um, the seance from Christine's arrival at mm -hmm. uh, Sean Sandina's house through the end of that sequence. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, yep. you know, they're dancing on, f you know, they're floating in the air and dancing on fire. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's just like so Sam Raimi. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm about to reference that scene. Um, but let's let's go to our final award of the night. The Brad Dourif Award for a character who could or should have been played by 
Brad Dourif, uh, an actor we love here at Scare You. Um, perhaps you would say maybe maybe an adjunct professor here I at Scare You. He's, he's, so lucky. he's referenced so often um, for an actor who probably best known to horror fans is the voice of Chucky in the child play films. But I mean, also The Exorcist 3, in which she plays James Veneman, the Gemini killer. Yes, yes. Also, um, Academy Award nominee for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, appearances in Lynch's Dune and Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, probably a lot of other things we're not thinking of. But also whose daughter, Fiona, I believe is starring in the current Chucky series. Am I am I right about that? I, you, I believe that I met Fiona at Comic-Con once years ago. Entirely possible. So sweet and cool. Right. And your dad is Brad Dourif. How I'm could you not be? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask Hale to start us off with this one. Brad Dourif, what do you got? Maybe this maybe this is a little on the nosy, but I think he could have played Lamia. Huh. Maybe that's it just feels like easy maybe but like in any particular scene in the seance scene as the goat oh god i love when the goat talks <laughs> oh the goat oh, me too um i could also have seen him playing that like random dude at the seance as well right who dances on fire milos the marionette milos yeah who is that why do we know him why do we care bradford who do why do we know him and he is apparently a nephew of Sean Santina's. I I just felt he was like an assistant type. Yeah, he he keeps referring to her as auntie. Hale, I am gonna, I am gonna once again. You and I are pretty much on the same page because Indeed. I am gonna give my Brad Dourif award to Milosh, especially hmm. the way he dances above the fire with that jaunty little tune playing in the background. Um, it's the one moment this film felt like it may have been directed by Tim Burton and scored by Danny Elfman um, because it felt very Beetlejuice to me at that moment. And I think Dorif would have nailed that part and that moment, especially the vomiting of the kitten. Bradford Lorick, what do you got for Brad Dorif? <sighs> well, you know, I thought that it... Mm, mm... I thought he could do a really serviceable job playing Clay's father, Leonard. <laughs> yes. But I think he would he would excel in the role of the um, Lamia-possessed Sean Sandina. Oh, interesting. So we're all going with the seance. Yeah, I guess so. Huh. Well, now what does Sean Sandina say? when she is possessed by the Lamia? Well, she's got some broken choppers and a very right. long tongue. Her eyes yep. are quite large. Her pupils are quite small. Um, when she contains the Lamia, I feel like it's got Brad Dourif Oscar gold written all over it. All right. And with that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night, final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Uh, Hale, A through F, would you like to go first? Oh, yeah. I think it's it's got to be an A because it does exactly what it sets out to do. I'll I take gotta... that. Eric? Well, um, 
I I know I've been a little stingy this semester uh, with the with the letter grades, but as you can probably tell, I really enjoyed this film. I've never given an A, and sadly, I'm not going to give an A tonight, if only for Alison Lohman's performance. So I'm giving this film an A minus. Wow. All right, Mr. Winnick. Thank you. Well, we're all hovering around the same place. I'm giving I'm giving Drag Me to Hell an A. You know what? This is this is a really good film and I cannot believe that it's taken me so long to see it and I just want to say me Thank too. you to you, Professor, for assigning this film. It was a joy from so start to finish. Sharks. Well, that means a lot coming from both of you. Fuck you. <laughs> I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did if you do tell your friends share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet have a listening party bring some fucking gushers i guess and hey just subscribe then you have one less thing to think about be sure to check out additional information on our instagram account in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareupod.com. Thanks again to our very special guest, my friend, Mr. Hale Appleman. Uh, Hale, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? Oh, you can find me on uh, Instagram at show. Still, always, and forever. Um, and on Twitter, uh, at Hale underscore Appleman even more inventive uh that's where i live online tiktok hasn't happened for me (laughs) watch hale's performance in ahs um new york it's excellent oh thanks hale's performance in everything is excellent i'm just screaming and dying all the time there (laughs) there you go not to mention not to mention what happens to him in teeth but we're not going to spoil that uh meanwhile they can find me in any dark bar or at www.bradfordlorick.com you can find me at any bright bar or at letterboxd and instagram under the moniker ea winnick our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. And our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week in the filthy pig knuckle we like to call... Scare You. Are we done? Because I just have to... Did I get some in my mouth? I think I got some in my mouth. Wait, we'll we'll clean you up. I think you Did got some, some on your mouth. You got some on your oh, tie. Oh. You got some on your. I think I I think I got some in my mouth. I think you. Ugh, Did I get some to, in my mouth? I think you're gonna have to change. Don't move. Don't move. Don't move. Hold on. <laughs>